0: Let us go to the Lord in prayer before we go through this text this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that no matter when it was written, it is still relevant. And we thank you that it is powerful and it is able to inform and to change us. And so we pray this morning as we look at Psalm 3, that again, we will be encouraged by your word, that you will speak to us as your Holy Spirit teaches us, and that we might have a better understanding of who you are. And so I pray this morning that as we go through your word, we will be once again convinced of its truth, that we will again be able to apply it to our lives and be more faithful followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, Psalm 3 is a lament psalm, and there is actually 41% of the psalms are actually laments, where there's a cry to God because there's a problem. And so David here is now crying out to God because he has a problem. Things are difficult. And in many ways, this psalm is, is a psalm that is very applicable for us. Because all of us, like David, face trials. All of us face troubles. And in fact, as the world continues to spin out of control, and as problems get worse, we could say that this is even more applicable to date for us. And whether our struggles are from outside, from those who would persecute us, whether those are those who would tell us that what we believe and what we do is wrong to our own personal struggles within our own families, within our own hearts, this is applicable. And we could say, in some sense, this this is a Psalm about what happens when the world is falling apart, when your world is falling apart and you're struggling and things are difficult. And David will answer that question very, very strongly and he will say, as is some of your titles, trust in God trust in God. In other words, when you are in trouble, this is what you must do. You must trust into God and you must look to him. And then all of your troubles and all of your trials and all of your situations will take care of themselves. And so this morning we will walk through this text. It breaks up into three nice couplets here. Verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, 7 and 8. And we will see David's journey through trials and troubles and how he relies on the Lord and he keeps his trust in him. And we will learn from David how we should react and behave in those times when trials and troubles, when there's a testing of our faith. That we will have confidence, trust, and faith in God. And so this morning, you will be, you, if you look at this in, in the Hebrew text, these things are written right into the text. For us, they're, they're put before the verse, but it starts here with a psalm of David when he fled from, his, from Absalom, his son. And so there is a background to this psalm that will help us understand David's predicament and his trouble that will help us see the depth of it and will ultimately show us how we should respond when we are in dire straits. Now, as we come here, we recognize that Absalom was David's son. Now, Absalom was actually David's third son. And Absalom here is now in the midst of trying to overthrow his father, Absalom in in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel is seen to come upon the scene in ver, in chapter 3 where he is born as the third son of of David. He was a son that David loved. He had affection for him. And he is described in in this chapter 14. Now all Israel was one Was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. I don't know when's the last time you measured your hair when you got it cut but here was a man that is that is described as handsome we we know he's handsome and he's got a wonderful head of hair but you'll notice as matthew henry would point out that there's something missing about absalom here that's not said there's nothing said about what his wisdom he's just handsome and has a lot of hair right handsome and a lot of hair but there's nothing about his wisdom now absalom if you recall was in was the one who wanted to avenge his sister who was raped and so he wants to avenge it and partly because his father refused to do anything about it david knew what had taken place, but David did nothing. And so Absalom rose up and, and he decided that he would take care of this situation. And so he took the sons of David and he went over there and he murdered those who had dealt with their sister so badly and killed them. Now, as a result, we would understand that what he did was not in divine We should say divinely approved because what did Absalom do? He ran off and disappeared. He knew that he had murdered. He couldn't go to any of the refugee cities. So he needed to disappear because he would be guilty of murder. And so Absalom, after murdering those men, takes off and goes into hiding. And so he disappears for a long period of time. Now again, remember that Absalom is David's son that he, whom he loves. And David doesn't deal with his son. He doesn't go after his son. He simply allows him to disappear. And then a long time later, David, who still loves his son... And not dealing with anything allows his son to come back. In fact, his son burns down a field to get Job's attention. Tells Job, "Hey, I haven't seen you know. I want to see my father's face." And so he gets Job to actually get David to see him. Like David allowed him to come back into Jerusalem, but David never saw him. And so he says, "Well, I may as well be out in the desert." So he burns a field. Says, "Here, come. I want to see the, the king." Now you would think, "Well, oh, that's nice. He wants to see his father. But Absalom was not a good man. Absalom had higher aspirations. He wanted the throne. Now it's interesting, because Absalom's name is my, father, my father's peace. My father is peace." But Absalom was far from peaceful. And so he orchestrates, as it were, a coup on his father's kingdom. He wants the throne. And so in 2 Samuel 15, it says, Now it came about after that, that Absalom provided for him a chariot and horses and 50 runners to go before him. So he got an audience with David, and he was was allowed back into society. And so Absalom, after this, provided himself with a chariot horses and 50 men as runners before him now here is absalom and he is now he's putting on a show for the people he's putting some people would say the bling he's putting he's putting on a big show he wants people to to recognize him to know who he is to see that he's a man of substance Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate and when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment Absalom would call to him and say from what city are you and he would say your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel then Absalom would say to him see your claims are good and right but no man listens to you on part of the king. Or Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has a suit or a cause could come to me and I would give him justice. And so there is Absalom just being the politician. He's outplaying politics and he's saying, Actually, guess what? Your case is good. Your complaint is good. In fact, it would appear that there was no one who brought a complaint to him that he didn't think had a good case. Now, if you're bringing a case against someone and you have a problem and you're, you're told that your case is a good one, who, who are you going to have sympathy for? Absalom, right? He's the one, he's the one who's, who says, listen, the king isn't really taking care of you. He's not hearing you, but I do. I'm the one who understands your case, and and you are right. I don't think any of us hate to hear those words, you're right. And so here is Absalom at the gate. Instead of people going to the, the wise men at the gate or even David at the gate, it's Absalom who meets them. And he says, really, he's really saying, listen, the king doesn't care for you. The king doesn't hear you, but I do. I'm, I, I'm the sympathetic one. I'm the one who will do right for you. And it says in verse 5, And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put on, out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Right? There's a politician. Oh, no, don't fall on the ground. I know you think I'm the king's son and that I, I, I deserve, you know, to be bowed to. But, oh, no, I'm just a common man. I'm with you. I'm going to lift you up, give you a kiss. Everything's good, right? He's playing a pretty good game here. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He's intercepting them. He's the guy that's going to help them. He's the one who's sympathetic. He's the one who's just the common man. I'm with you. I'm one of you. I understand you. Now it came at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. Absalom has plans. For your servant vowed a vow while I was giving at Geshur, In Aram, saying, if the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Woo. Religious too, right? How can you not grant a guy who wants to do right before the Lord? Then the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and they went innocently and they did not know anything. So here's what Absalom's doing. It was, it was quite common for kings to rule with their sons. Right? So they would rule and then the, the, just before they died they would, they would co-rule with their sons so that when they died there was smooth kingship taking over. So here's Absalom, and he's going around, and he says, here, tell everybody that I'm king. Right? And you would think, well, that should twig something with people. But no, they just thought, well, David, he's getting older, right? He stayed home in battle. He got into trouble with Bathsheba. He's, he's getting feebler. So maybe Absalom, who's the apple of his eye, and this is the guy that's been dealing with us anyway, maybe Dave's, David's just given him to rule with him. And so he's deceived these men. They are innocent. They didn't know what was going on. They thought this was legit. Oh, what a web we weave, right? And so here he goes. His plan is in full motion. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilionite, David's counselor from the city of Giloth while he was offering the sacrifices and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. So more and more people were, were actually seeing Absalom as king. They were, he won their hearts and he was slowly taking over. Then it says in verse 13, then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of, I- of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Then the king went out with all the people with him and they stopped at the last house. Now all of the servants passed on beside him, all, all of the 600, and then it says 600 men who had come with him from Gath passed before the king. So here is the king of Israel and he's really reduced to a few servants and 600 men. Some of them mighty, some of them old. And David now flees because Absalom is now after him. He's going to strike him with the sword. There is rebellion in the land. There is, there is a coup, and he wants to take over to be king. Instead of waiting for David's death, he is now after David, and David is now forced to flee. And so David is forced out of his kingdom he's forced out of the palace and he must run he must run and so as this is the circumstances that David is writing psalm 3 he is he is now in deep trouble he has not only the fact that his life is in danger the fact that his 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 rule as king is in danger. But also, this is, this is personal. His son, his son has betrayed him and wants his life. And this is where David is as he comes here and as he sings this song of trust in God. This is what he is dealing with. This is what he has to trust God for. But just like David, every one of us has trials. Every one of us has problems. Every one of us has troubles. We like to say you're either going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial, right? There's only three stages, right? There's troubles in our lives. And just like David, we will have to find a way to go through those and to put our trust in God. And this morning, we will see those four four things that David will do. We will see his predicament. We will see his trust. As he trusts in God, we will see his peace. And then we will see David's triumph. And we too, if we will walk with David... We'll find out just like Paul wrote. All things work together for good for them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, this morning, let us simply begin as we walk through this text and look at God, at David's predicament. He says, O oh Lord, my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Now you can see the predicament that David is in. O oh God, oh Lord, my adversaries have increased. And we saw that, that Absalom was growing and growing in strength. More and more people were going to Absalom's side to the, to the point where David recognized that he was outnumbered. Many are rising against me. Many are standing up in rebellion. They, they, there's an active coming after David. They're not just they're not just against him. They are coming for him. Many. 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 Right? Many are rising. Many are saying. My adversaries have increased the same word, many. David is saying, I look up and I see that the Israelites are rebelling against me. They want me dead. They are increasing in number and power. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. And here's the thing. As much as David is in a predicament that he is having to flee, He's fleeing at this point. The bigger predicament is what they say to him. They say there is no deliverance for him in God. There's no deliverance for him in God. They are saying, listen, David, you're done. God is not for you anymore. God is not on your side. He's abandoned you. They're not just saying that God won't help you. He's saying that God is against you. It's interesting because when you look In Second Samuel 16, you'll see exactly what's being said. Second Samuel 16. When King David came, verse 5, came to Baharim, behold, there came out of there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Jerah. He came out cursing continually, as he came he threw stones at david and all the servants of david king david and all the people and all of the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left thus shammai said when he cursed get out get out you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom and behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. Right? You deserve this, David. God has abandoned you. He's actually against you. It's not just that God can't save you from us. God is on our side. That's similar to what Abisha said to the king when he talked with Absalom. And Absalom said, what the Lord has set forth and what Israel has decided, I will not go against. In other words, Epiphothel had actually decided that God had abandoned David too. And so he says, listen, God is against you, David. God can't save you, not because he's not capable, because he won't. He's abandoned you. Now the temptation here and the predicament for David mostly is this. Do I abandon my trust in God at this point? Do I abandon my trust in God? Because he said, he's the one who made me king. He's the one who made the covenant with me. He's the one who appointed me as the anointed king of Israel. Do I actually believe this? Do I actually believe this? Now some of you might say, "Well, he's getting what he deserved." After all, back in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan said this: "Why have you despised the word of the Lord, doing evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your his wife to be your wife, and killed him with the sword of the, of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife." Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And there could be the call here to say, yeah, God has, God has abandoned David. He's getting what He deserves. And there can be for us that same idea. We get under trials, we get under stress, things are falling apart, and we are tempted to lose our trust in God, and we start to say, God has abandoned me. God has left me. It's not that God is incapable of of helping me. He just doesn't want to. And there can be a chance where our faith is under attack and we start to doubt God and we start to doubt his goodness and we start to doubt who he is and we think there's no hope. And this was what David's predicament was. Do I trust God or do I listen to those voices that say God can't save you? God can't help you. And there are times in our lives where we get into trouble, where we get into trials, we get into difficult situations, and our temptation is to say, the Lord can't help me. The Lord can't help me. But David doesn't stay there. David doesn't. He tells us the predicament. But then David responds as we should. David doesn't stay in this tone of of despondency. But he begins to change. Now David changes his focus and he lifts his eyes from his problems. And we can see David's changing his eyes to the Lord. And so he says he goes from his predicament to his trust. Listen to this. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me, from the holy mountain. You see, David? David takes his eyes from his problems and he lifts his eyes to the Lord. And he lists three things that God is for him. Now notice this. He says this. But you. Do you see that? But you. It never starts with but I. It's not in your resources. It's not in your abilities. It's not in your intelligence. It's not in your control. But he turns his eyes. But you, O Lord, this is where he puts his faith. This is where he puts his trust. You, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, you are a shield about me. And so David says, actually, I'm going to plant my trust in the character of who God is. I'm going to see who he is, and I will put my trust there. He says, you are a shield about me. Now, there's two types of shields that they use. There was the full body shield that we would use if we were attacking a a city or we were a long ways off that we could protect ourselves from, from spears being thrown or from bows and arrows. There was a small shield that was used in hand-to-hand combat that often was held close to protect the body and to fend off blows. Now, David may have been looking back at Genesis where Abraham said that, that God said that he was Abraham's shield. But more than likely, you can see in this picture of battle that he's talking here, that he's thinking of a shield. And he says, you are a shield... He says, about me. Now, this is a strong word. It's actually around me. Around me. And just like his enemies were circling around him and, and coming against him, he says this. God is my shield. He is my protection. He is the one who keeps me from the slings of the arrows and he is completely around me. It's like he is the force field around me. He is the hedge of protection around me. He's the one who will protect me. He is the one who will keep me. And so David comes back to the recognition of who God is. He is the protector. He is the shield that will keep him. As Psalm says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. So David is secured. He is humiliated, but secure. He is seemingly in a vulnerable place, but he is surrounded by God's protection. God is his protector. is his deliverer and so david remembers who god is and he remembers that god has his god is his protector and his shield he is the one who set him up as king and he is the one who has surrounded him with his protection and then he says my glory now we think of the word glory and we think of 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 radiance but the hebrew word here for glory has the idea of weight the idea of weight. And he's saying, God is my significance. In other words, this is what gives me significance and importance. It's not that I'm the king of Israel. It's not that I have a crown. It's not that I have wealth. But what's significant is, my, is God. It took David a long time to realize this, but what was significant, what was important for David was God and his relationship with him. So David says, God is my glory, not the restoration of my kingdom, not the restoration of my crown, none of those things. What gives me importance? What gives me glory? What is my glory is that I know the true and living God. Then he says this, the one who lifts up my head, the one who lifts up my head. In other words, David says the idea of lifting up the head is is restoration. And he says, he's the one who restores me. He's the one who will restore me to my rightful place. to restore dignity and position and that certainly happened in second samuel where david is restored to the throne in in chapter 19 david is restored back to his rightful place as king and on the throne and so david is confident before god of his choice of him as israel king Because he looks at God and he looks at God's character and he looks at who God is. And instead of looking at the obstacles and seeing the, the amount of people that are coming against him. He looks to God and his character. He's my shield, my glory, the one who lifts my head. The only reason I have significance is because of him. And he's the one who will restore me says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. David said, at that time, I cried to the Lord for help. I cried for him and he restored me. He says, from his holy mountain. That was where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was. It represented God's presence. And he's saying, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. In other words, God was close. God heard my voice. And again, we, we see this. David is fleeing the temp- is fleeing from the from the palace, and as he is fleeing, he comes across Epitha- Ahithophel, and he says to Ahithophel, "Listen, go give advice to Absalom, but make it bad advice." give your advice, what shall we do? And so he goes and David prays to the Lord that the Lord will help him. David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. 15 verse 31. And so he's praying, he's praying that God will make his counsel foolishness. Well, God in his way answers his way because it turns out that Ahithophel gives good advice to Absalom. But God in his way makes it so Absalom won't listen to it. And so David's prayer is answered. They were going to go after David. They knew where he was sleeping. And they said, go get him. And he said, well, no, David's too smart for that. And so God, he prayed to God that he would, he would make that advice bad. And guess what? That advice ended up not being listened to. And so God answered his prayer. It's interesting that he's actually on the Mount of Olives here when he meets him. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's on, the, he's on Mount Zion. And that's exactly where God heard him. He answered that prayer from Mount Zion. So David puts his trust in God. Instead of looking at his problems and his adversaries, he looks to God and he sees that God is his shield. God, David gets his identity in knowing God and he knows that God will restore him and that God answers his prayers. This is where we need to go. When troubles come and trials come, We need to take our eyes off our problems and place them on him because the trials and the troubles look so large until we look to who God is. And when we look at his character and we look at who he is and who he promises to be, then our problems go away. Now, again, he says zela here. We don't really know what that means. Some people think it's a musical interlude. Some people think that it means to stop and think. But this is the second time it's used in the psalm. The first time, first time he said, there's no deliverance in God. Think about that. Here he goes, he's answered me from the holy mountain. Think about that. I look to God. I know who he is. He answered me think about that. And again, we put our trust back into God. And David says, I trust God. I know who he is. I know of his faithfulness. I know of his answer prayer. Therefore, I put my trust in him in this circumstances, knowing that he knows the end from the beginning and that he will do what is right. Well, we've seen his predicament, David's predicament. We've seen David's trust. Now we see David's peace. Verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. Now, David, remember, is on the run. David has... People who are seeking to kill him, this does not seem like the time that you should lay down and sleep. This is not natural or normal. It doesn't even seem safe. Yet David says, I lay down and I slept. Now, at least it doesn't say here, I lay down to sleep, right? He doesn't say, you know, I was hoping to sleep. He said, I, I lay down and I slept. And you've got to say, David, you missed a step there. You needed to worry a little bit. You needed to toss and turn for a while before you went to sleep. But David doesn't say that. David says, I lay down and I slept. In other words, I looked at the character of God. I looked at answered prayer. And guess what? I lay down and I slept. I have no worries in the world. Now, there's a few people who have imitated this. We look at Peter. What was he doing when he got rescued? He was sleeping between two, two soldiers, right? Fact is, Peter, Peter didn't even believe it himself. He thought he was still sleeping. That's how, how asleep he was, that when he woke up, he thought he was still sleeping. And he, it took him probably until he banged on the door, and they slammed the door in his face for him to recognize, hey, this is really happening, Right? Again, the peace of God, what? Guard your hearts. Be anxious for nothing and all things with prayer, supplication, make your requests known unto God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Right? This is the Old Testament version of that, of Philippians chapter four. David, he just, he trusts God. He laid it all on God and looked at God and said, you can deal with it, you will do as you please, and therefore, guess what, I can sleep. Now, just in case you think that he's being a little bit uh, sloppy here, or a little bit careless, he says, and I, wo- I awoke. Guess what? I just didn't fall asleep, you know, I just didn't, you know, I just didn't carelessly fall asleep and think, oh, well, the Lord will take care of it. You know, that kind of just let go, whatever fatalistic thing. No, Paul, he, he, David says, no, I, I awoke. I awoke. And the reason I awoke, he says, is because the Lord sustains me. He's the one who holds me up. He's the one who protects me. And he says, I went to sleep and I awoke. My enemies were searching to kill me. And guess what? I just slept and I'm alive today. Why? Because I'm so clever because I'm a good soldier I know strategy no because the Lord sustains me and that is the same thing for us in every situation we somehow think that we can paddle the boat and make things go and we have to recognize that he is the one who sustains and controls all things it's not us That's why he says, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me and around about me. It doesn't matter how many people come after me. It doesn't matter how many people are trying to kill me. I won't be afraid of any of them. I don't care if there's 10,000 upon 10,000. It does not matter. Why? Because God is stronger than all of them. And he says, God sustains me. And you know what? That same promise is open to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who sustains us. He's the one that keeps us. He's the one that strengthens us. Nothing can happen to us except by his divine will. And we can face whatever problem there is knowing that God will sustain us. And so here is David with the peace of God Guarding his heart. I think if we're all honest, there's been many times where we've laid in bed and we've struggled with problems and we've tossed and turned and we've, we've tried to figure out how to fix it. We need a little bit more of David where we recognize that it is God who sustains us. God will work out his will in his way. And we simply need to trust him. And we need to stop worrying. We need to stop being anxious. We need to put it in his hands, trust his character, and do what David did. Let the peace of God guard your heart. So David put, had peace as he sat before God. So we've seen David's predicament. Do I believe those doubting voices? We see his trust as he puts it in the Lord. We've seen God's, his peace. And now we see David's triumph. David now turns and says, Arise, O Lord, save me, my God, For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. So again, David calls out, Arise, O God. You can hear Numbers 10.35. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. This was a battle cry. Before every battle, they brought out the the ark. And this is the prayer that Moses declared. Arise, O Lord, your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And David grabs on to Numbers 10.25 as he faces his adversaries and those who would kill him and says, O Lord, save me, my God, for you are smitten. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And so he calls upon God to do what God says he will do. These are two imperatives here, but he's not commanding God. He's simply calling on God to do what God said he would do and to save his character. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Keep me now, give me final victory. Give me triumph over my enemies. He says, for you have smitten my enemies on the cheek and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Now he says, "You have smitten my enemies on the cheek." And again, we would this. We know in the first century, if you slapped someone in the face, if you gave them a backhand, that was an insult. This is an, uh, a hit on their pride. I think it's pretty much that way today too, right? But he says, "You you have you have smitten their pride," and he says, "You have shattered their teeth." Now there's. We're not really sure what that means. There was two, two, two ways that this can go. It could be a wild animal that you pulled out all their teeth and then they can't bite you. At least they'll just gum you. Or this could be someone who, who was, because of their crime, had their teeth shattered in their mouth. Can you imagine the pain, the devastation? And he says, God, this is what you... It's He's saying here, it's as good as done. Some of yours has a present tense. Some of yours has past tense on this verse. Some of yours says you will shatter. Some of you say you have shattered. But the idea here is David is placing his confidence in God and saying, you, the victory is yours. You're the one who does this. Now, I know ultimately this will be done through the means for David through people. But ultimately, God will be the one who brings the victory. Again, you can hear these things being done in battle as you shatter someone's teeth. And then David says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, the only way that this will happen, the only way that I will be delivered is is by what? By the Lord. He's the one who has to do this. It's interesting because he says here, your blessing be upon your people. May you bless those who follow you. Now it's interesting because there was another son of David that came. Another son of David that came that had many adversaries. Another son of David that people rose up and rebelled against. Another son of David who hung on the cross to pay the price for sin and they cried out to him, there's no deliverance for you. Save yourself. If you're truly God come down from the cross and they ridiculed him. But there was, a, and this son too trusted, put his trust in God who laid down in submission to his father and trusted. And another son who ultimately was vindicated by his father and now brings salvation to us. And it is that son that we need to put our trust in. And it is that son that is now for us who are his. And it's to him that we cry. We cry first for salvation and now we cry to him for protection. And we too know that salvation belongs to the Lord And that the battle has already been won for us, who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, because our future is secure. He has already purchased our salvation, and we are secure in him. And no matter what happens in this world, what trials we go through, we know the end. We will be victorious. We will rule with him. And we need to fear nothing. This doesn't mean that God's going to fix all of your problems. It doesn't mean that you won't have to die for him. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be smooth sailing. But what it does is lift our eyes to God and to give us an eternal perspective that at the end of the day all things do work together for good for them that love him who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because we will be glorified and be with our Lord Jesus Christ. We may not win here, but we will win in the end and we will be victorious and salvation is ours. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would again Take your word and bury it deep within us. I pray that we would learn to trust you, to put our faith in you, to bank upon your character, to be covered in your peace, and to be triumphant in our salvation and our deliverance from you. And so I pray that no matter what we are going through, what trials we are going through, what troubles and tribulations, that we will have an eternal perspective and that we will have joy in our hearts and praise in our hearts because you have saved us. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.